Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. All set for your flight? Yep, I've got everything I need. Eye mask, neck pillow, T-Mobile, headphones. Wait, T-Mobile? You bet. Free in-flight Wi-Fi. 15% off all Hilton brands. I never go anywhere without T-Mobile. Same goes from a water bottle, chewing gum, nail clippers, okay, passport. Okay, I'm going to leave you to it. Find out how you can experience travel better at T-Mobile.com slash travel. Qualifying plan required. Wi-Fi were available on select U.S. airlines. Deposit and Hilton Honors membership required for 15% discount. Terms and conditions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles. We win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. It is the Anfield Wrap in association with Reds Bet. Neil Atkinson here. We're sponsoring and partnering with Reds Bet through the entirety of 2018. And because of that, they're uh, providing us uh, with a rationale to do a transfer deadline day show. 12 noon till 12 midnight. We will be live streaming, believe wow. it or not. What a performance that's going to be. Uh, more of a palaver than a performance. Are you going to be in yellow? Uh, I, well, I would, I'd like to be in yellow all the time if it could be arranged, to be honest with you. But they do sort of... They, sadly, men's clothes are far too soberly coloured for my liking on the whole. Uh, so yes that is to come so uh, yes that's with Red's Bet if you do gamble think about gambling with them and if you don't don't and please do be gamble aware uh, and we'll go from there on this I've got Mel Reddy you've heard it I've got Paul Hogan I'm breaking this show up a little bit I'm going to be talking to Rory Smith later on uh, about the World Cup and the knock-on effect of the Premier League and then I'm also going to be talking to Matt Jones about Everton just trying to give people a little flavour of everything we try to do or some of what we try to do for tour player which is available for £5 a month but we will start with what this question what does Jurgen Klopp's ideal squad look like and Mel I still don't think we know the answer to this it's his third full season in English football his third full season at Liverpool um, he's had three goes and you get the impression that he's still not that whilst it's very much his squad and it has to be his squad these are all the players he's decided he wants to retain so far going right the way through you get the impression it's either always going to be a work in progress for him or he's always going to because he's so specific in terms of what he wants, we may never quite see everything quite gel together as he might like. Yeah, in his uh, first preseason over in California, actually spoke to him about building the squad and what that entails and and the entire process of it. And he says, or he said at the time that it's literally like putting together a puzzle. And the issue is the parts that you may want at a certain time, you may not be able to get at that time, or the part you may think you need when the season actually starts and and you see the way the team are playing, it actually changes because the attributes you're then missing aren't the attributes you, you thought you'd be missing and you needed to rectify. And one example I'd use for that is Liverpool really liked uh, Mahmoud Daoud who ended up going to Borussia Dortmund. Uh, and 
they liked him because he they thought okay you know tempo setter good engine um can keep things ticking over but when the season started with henderson winaldum and emery shan and you had full coutinho liverpool looked at it and thought actually after like two months two or three months they thought mm, that's actually not what we need anymore what we need what this team is missing is more dynamism they want wanted somebody who was going to be a ball carrier who could be dual purpose and they'd obviously seen navigator and they were thinking yeah that is actually where we need to go and invest um, and because of the fluidity of of football in terms of everything around it really you know um I don't think he, his idea will ever be concrete because it has to to change so often. I think more than what a, a specific school, you know, number like say 27, mm -hmm. 27 people. I think beyond the, the number it's him trying to get what he needs uh stylistically in terms of all the variation in each position to work with. And the other thing he said is people always look at a squad and think about now, what do we need this season? And when, from where he sits, he has to take a step back and look at all aspects. What do we need for the next three, five seasons? What do we need? Who's coming through? Whose path are we potentially going to block? Um, and even with the young players, oftentimes... Like, I see a lot of people asking, why isn't Harry Wilson going to get a chance this season? Why is he going out on loan? And you have to think, they work with these... They, they know everything about Harry Wilson, everything there is to know. His strengths, his weaknesses, where he can impact a game, where he can't, what he still needs to work on to be, you know, a more complete footballer. And they don't think he's best served at Liverpool. And they will know but then you look at another player and you, you look at Curtis Jones and you think what is he going to be in two years you know he's already so composed so intelligent in his decision making and his awareness of, of what being a midfielder entails so I think you want to create a, a scenario where when he's ready the, the opportunity is there for him it strikes me that a lot of this stuff, Paul, comes through as the idea that the manager, just to go with the first half of what Mel discussed there, move on to the second, because it's very much sets the tone for the conversation, is overtaken by events, both what his players on the pitch do, but also the fact that this league is at times maybe still or at least it was a little bit surprising to him, the idea of what it is that he actually wants. I mean, we, we always look back at his time at Dortmund, but he's now been here for, th for, for three and a half seasons. He's a different coach now yeah. than he will have been. He's constantly developing himself, but also he's more aware of the challenge and the different nature of the challenge. Yeah. For instance, no winter break. In fact, it intensifies over the Christmas and January period. All of that sort of stuff. You can't necessarily take that data, but what you can say is that he's, he's having to, find himself in a situation I think where he's looking to constantly respond to what he learns about not just the players that he's got himself but the players he's coming up against and that's why it's really difficult to sort of get a grip on where he's up to because he does seem really open to learning I think well I think that's the really interesting thing I mean I don't know whether it was just me but when he first came to Liverpool there was this whole heavy metal football and it if felt very this is the way he does things and this is what's going to happen and, and then you have the whole previous club thing and this is how he did things and 
what's really surprised me with Klopp, I suppose, is that he's so willing to learn and he's so willing to adapt and change and and and, and do these things, which is exactly what Mel was saying. Um, and I wasn't expecting that from Klopp. Maybe you know, even our best managers in the past haven't been great at adapting their styles and what what they're trying to do, um, or, or or learn from the mistakes even. And you know, and I think that that's the interesting thing with Klopp is from from day one he's been really in, willing to learn from his mistakes. Um, so I think that's the joy of it for me with him right now is that you're looking at him and you, you, you sort of finding problems to. Or finding solutions to problems before they've even arose, really. And where you know some of the players he signed, we we wouldn't have even realised were players that we we thought we needed. Um, so yeah, so I think I think that's the joy of him right now is that things are changing and he's adapting all the time to what's going on. You mentioned previous managers there, the two that sort of stand out for me because we got to see them over a longer spell of and certainly coming into English football are Julio and Benitez, mm-hmm. and you got the impression that Julio could never adapt and that Benitez could never quite get. To, could never quite get out of work in progress, couldn't quite get out of compromise. You know, we had the idea, I think, for instance, when he signs Torres, you get the impression he's been wanting to sign Torres for four years or someone like Torres. And then finally you get to him and he's like, right, this is what this is meant to look like. Front to back, this is what this is now meant to look like. But he was never able to sort of get the next bit because of the issue with the ownership and, and his own managerial reign. And, and, and it was such graft to get to that point. It strikes me that with Klopp, you know, he's got something that he should be able to look at last season. And whilst it, it wasn't perfect, if it was perfect, it would win everything. But he was able to sort of, you know, there's, there's aspects of it he can point out. He's now adding Kiter, he's got Van Dyke in there. He's now put himself in a position of, of sort of constant evolution. And I think that's really interesting, Paul, that we're going to mm-hmm. see him have to constantly evolve rather than the idea of... he's I, For me, he looks beyond missing piece of the jigsaw. We've always said that, missing piece of the jigsaw. Torres, missing piece of the jigsaw. Klopp can't say missing piece of the jigsaw he's just had a lot score over 40 goals he's now looking for how do we continually tweak the picture not the idea of how do we complete the jigsaw I think that's interesting next I think you know you look back at them two managers who you mentioned and Julier came in and 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 Obviously, he had that. He was really solid at the back, and they did. They were, they were so good at the counter attack. And then you got the impression that he was trying to adapt his style, but whether that was whether circumstances took over, and he he, he, he always fell back to first principles of one setback. That's the thing I always took. You know, they yeah. get beat once, and suddenly it'd be right. It's back to nine men behind the ball because we're not doing that. Yeah, yeah, quite possibly. And Benitez again. Maybe, maybe we can talk about he was hamstrung by what was going on in the boardroom and things like that. Klopp seems to have took all of them things because you know. Right now, everything's rosy in the garden. Things seem to be, you know, I know people have got issues with the club at times and things, but in general, the club seems to be one. But it hasn't been like that from the day Klopp came to Liverpool. You know, he's had to work on that. And, you know, and then we've had issues with, you know, the transfer committee, all these different things. Um, but he seems so adaptable in, in, in that and, and that, you know, he hasn't got one way in this heavy metal football, whatever word you want to use. It, it incorporates so many different things that, you know, he's willing to change. Is there a is there going to come a conflict, Mel? Because it's interesting you say about managing eighteen months, managing thirty months, thirty six months down the line. That that's how you're thinking as a manager. But he's never really wanted a squad of stars. Is the impression that you get. However, it is worth pointing out that with these things, there's always the exception. He spent seven. He's got a world record fee for a defender, yeah, for instance. Yeah. So you know we've got to be careful with that. But if he is going to try to challenge a team that's got a hundred points, which we've got to all think he wants to do. Mm. It might be difficult for him to do that whilst he's trying to guard against a squad of stars. Yeah. That it that effectively, if you're in a situation where the opponents have got a great manager and 25 great players, 
and you're trying to challenge them with a couple of what we'll just sort of call misfits, it's not fair, but for the purposes of this conversation, and do things your own way. There is, and maybe we've seen that, why he does go for Van Dijk and goes as heavy as he does for him, but there is a, a bit of a conflict there, isn't there, in terms of at some point he may just have to commit everything to the now, and yet that does seem so opposed to the philosophy we see him go with. Yeah. I actually don't think there's there's a divergence because if you look at let's take a few signings if you look at Sadio Mane Sadio Mane is for now but he's also you you know he was last se- very last season got this season to next two three four five see so in it, it's not that he's always looking to build something for then and, and is ignoring what's happening at the moment it's everything is he thinks about longevity while also still trying to win now. So in that as in that element, you, he's not going to go and get Cristiano, a thirty-three-year-old Cristiano Ronaldo, for that. No matter how good of a player he is, because it doesn't gel with everything else Liverpool are doing. So I don't think there's a battle between now and then. What I do think is the case is okay. So he comes in. It's the Europa League final, League Cup final, Liverpool lose, okay, Liverpool go on, secure Champions League football, imperative. Then they do it again, back-to-back qualification for the Champions League, plus reach a Champions League final. So there's this progression, but and I think this season, he will feel more than ever that while every it, it's inarguable, the, pro, uh, the progress, I think he'll get the sense of we need to really underscore it with something you know whatever whatever that is trophy or a, a real 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 title push or, a 90 point finish yeah whatever the, however that shows itself but he will know that it's but, the next step to take but this is why I think it's interesting when you talk about the developmental stuff Mel because I think you can almost see you could almost plot a graph of the extent to which he's shown less and less interest in a project, mm. like around a certain player or something yeah. like that. So for the first sort of six to eight months, lads have been projects. You go right the way back to when he started at Dortmund and he straight away had the young centre-back partnership and he committed to them and he was going to commit to them and he was going to stick with them. And then you, he comes into Liverpool and you got the impression he had three or four younger players who were projects. And last season, you can possibly argue the only one who falls into that category even though for instance Gruwich is around for four or five months but he doesn't get a sniff doesn't get near it is Alexander-Arnold that everyone else there's no one else who you can sort of see as a project player yeah. and now this season and I think it's, he's had to do that because of the top four challenge because of the pressuring because you've got to go with two points a game and I think this season you're not going to see a project anywhere I don't think I think you are going to see that it's it is all hands to the, to the pump of right how do we get to 90 points mm. is that fair or do you think that he still will have the idea that he's got his developmental project running through the campaign I don't think it's set I don't think he always thinks that he has to have one or if he doesn't have one he's trying to search for one it just is what's happening at the time who's there at the time remember Borussia Dortmund didn't have the capabilities Liverpool have in the market in exactly, terms of yeah. spending so but didn't have the he, expectation either so exactly it's- and there's time and a willingness to buy into stuff that whereas like I've said we're at the point now where progress has to go advance 
you know, another step, which is quite difficult to do when you've just been in the Champions League final, right? And qualified so, for it two years back to back. Exactly. So something else, Liverpool have to illustrate something else now. And in the, in the context of that, it's much harder. I think Gruich is a good example because I think he's a very good player in terms of his attributes and stuff. But he still needs to work on his underst- like positional awareness, understanding of the game. I think his spell at Cardiff helped with his discipline and, and off-the-ball work. But there's no time to commit to teaching him all that stuff now, given the talent Liverpool have in midfield. So that's why he's best served going to Cardiff again, probably, for another season or, where, or wherever he goes. Um, but if... At this, you know, I don't think go back to season before last. There's no real Trent Alexander-Arnold is going to be starting right back next season. It it happens because it happens, and because he's he's moving with the flow, not because he was desperate to have a young player in the squad. I mean, he likes that, but it's not essential. I think when I look at the squad at the moment. The obvious key glaring punches you square in the face thing is Liverpool need to buy a goalkeeper this summer because I think all the other areas you can you can be fine with you can think the core the spine of the squad actually looks quite good. You have a situation now when neither three goalkeepers are convincing as number one. Now Simon Mignolet's had two hundred and two appearances, so there's no point in in him sticking around for what we already know, what we've known for years to be the case, right? Loris Karius has had 49 appearances, I think. And with Loris, when he comes into the team initially after breaking his hand, Klopp takes um, responsibility there, saying he rushed him into... He didn't actually understand the severity of a broken hand for a keeper. And... Yeah, he sort of takes responsibility for chucking him in too soon and him having that bad spell takes him back out. Mignolet comes in and for the first time ever, we saw improvement from him because for the first time since he'd been at Liverpool, he was actually competing with someone. Every time Liverpool bought a goalkeeper, it was backup. It was to deputise. So there was never, ever, ever a, a strong goalkeeping department. Then, obviously, I think Karius is now in a position where I don't see how he recovers from Kiev, even even with the caveat of concussion. You've seen in the warm-up games already that, that you know, it's still playing on his mind, his mistakes. He doesn't... Somebody who's worked with him at Mines said to me about three, four months ago, and this was even when he was looking decent, he's unrecognisable. The goalkeeper to the goal. We we don't know who this goalkeeper mm. is because his biggest thing was he was assertive, he was commanding, he was quite confident, and we don't see all those things anymore. And I don't know how he gets it back, especially since it's going to be so unforgiving. I mean, at Barry on on Saturday, every single time the ball goes near him, the 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 home fans are you know, making all yeah. these strange noises towards him. And that's a pre-season friendly. And Imagine Crystal Palace away on a Monday exactly, night. Exactly, exactly. It's only going to get harder, right? Now, Danny Ward 
in to his credit, has only been given three games. So we actually don't know, but that tells me everything. That he's been given three games when the other two aren't convincing tells me everything I need to know about Danny Ward. Liverpool, that when we talk about the squad, they have to buy a good goalkeeper in this window. Um, Football clubs like Sharks, they've got to keep moving forward or they die. And one of the things I think why there's frustration around the goalkeeper situation from the supporters, Paul, is the idea that this thing might stop you from moving forward. That's the, the first and foremost sort of part of that is this thing might stop you from moving forward. And that's, you know, as harsh as that might be around a couple of the players, a couple of the people involved. And I think you can probably class both Ward and Carrius in that for different reasons that it might seem a bit harsh. But Liverpool do need to they do need to grab this because if not, it's so hard to move forward as Mel says. You've got a Champions League final and just finished top four. You know, that is that is a good season. It's a good season for, for practically any club. Pra- certainly for any English club, with the possible exception of Manchester City. I think that's a good season. Uh for Liverpool to, if there's any reason, if the goalkeeper ends up being one of the existing ones, a reason why Liverpool don't move forward, then that's where things begin to not feel great at football clubs because it's not moving forward. I think it's really difficult with the goalkeeper situation because you've got, you know, what happens happens, and, and you know, there's so much frustration around it. Um, whether Carries is good enough, regardless of that, that's a different question. I'm, I'm not sure, and I think there's a lot of people who will question that. I think. The interesting thing moving forward is is how he deals with that because the pressure that he's under and and by the way the pressure any goalkeeper that's going to be under that comes into Liverpool right yeah. now would be under it's 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 a huge ask for any goalkeeper so whoever we're going to buy if we are going to buy someone has to deal with a history of goalkeeping issues yeah. um, and that that's going to take some character. Um, the interesting thing with the jeering and all this type of stuff is. If I was the goalkeeper and I was in that position, I think I'd rather the jeering and the, the holding of breath that everyone else is doing who's trying to be respectful, if you like, because that's what be, I'll be doing all season. I won't, I won't jeer. I don't, I, I don't necessarily agree with that. I can understand why it's happening, but I don't necessarily agree with it. But I will be holding my breath every time the ball yeah. goes there. It's, not, it's obviously not the Liverpool fans that were jeering. It was, it was the Barry fans that right. were jeering, but... But Liverpool the, fans do have that sense of, and there's also a bit of ironic applause as well. Yeah, and that's what I noticed yeah, the tram. Yeah, and exactly. I wouldn't. That's what I wouldn't. I'd rather people were, were calling me all sorts than ironic applause. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. it's 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 a nightmare. Yeah. Or oh, being applauded for the basics, for the absolute basics, and people, even if it's not ironic, people going, "It's done all right there." Exactly, I mean, that is also yeah. every single time. There's there's almost no right outcome. Mm. No. And, and that's a fair point you make about the pressure any goalkeeper that comes to Liverpool is under. I think that's obviously in the conscience of of everyone who's in recruitment and who makes the decisions. But the issue that Carrius has at the moment, I think, is even if he has 10 good games or 15 good games, or the, the minute an error arises, or the minute yeah. there's... It might not even be a goalkeeping error, but it could be a goalkeeping error, if you get what I'm saying, because he is a talking well, point. And, and it won't... The goal on him... Saturday was that wasn't it the, the the other goal there the Milner mistake was it people were blaming Carrius and I couldn't see how you could blame the goalkeeper but, that and, that, and not even amongst the fan base but that will become a t- a thing on you know with the analysts on TV and and it's it's just a a situation that Liverpool don't need and I and I don't want Jurgen Klopp to spend ages and ages and ages trying to figure out this conundrum when there's an opportunity for Liverpool to go and buy a good goalkeeper. And by the way, 
in my opinion, the desire is there to buy a goalkeeper long before the Champions League final. Because if we remember, they paused talks with Alisson's representatives in February when the price kept escalating. So, you know, yeah. there, there is an, an, an awareness. Obviously, I think because of, of the climate of everything this summer where Real Madrid are pro probably going to buy a goalkeeper. Chelsea may need to change their goalkeeper if Courtois is the one that Madrid go after. So I think there's a little knock-on effect happening. Possibly auctions are going to happen and that's why Liverpool won't really say anything on the goalkeeper situation or, or not really show their hand. And I sort of feel like, I, I come back to that, the character of that goalkeeper, whoever we are buying, is probably more important than their ability right now because they've got they're going after weather a storm regardless you know people are going to be watching them from day one because because of the history i mean we talk about carriers but Mignolet had the same things as well Mignolet would, would have 10 good games in a row but everyone always felt like it was coming and to be fair it normally did <laughs> but they, they had the same problem so this is a history now that we've got that everyone that whoever comes in has got to deal with and i think that is the the, the crunch what are their character one of the issues with that's the thing. That's why I'm saying Liverpool have to, to make the right decision in terms of a goalkeeper because even buying Mignolet, Mignolet was not a top-level goalkeeper to come to a club like Liverpool, the football Liverpool wanted to play. He was very good at Sunderland, at shot-stopping. People were having mm. a go at Sunderland, you know, mm -hmm. for an entire game and he was kept busy and he looked good for them. But he wasn't the goalkeeper. David, Brendan Rodgers... David had, James kinds of goalkeeping. <laughs> yeah. Well, and even if Liverpool buy a goalkeeper that makes a mistake, I think the fact that he's something new, people will yeah. naturally give him time or, or be more forgiving. If one of the remaining three stay on, as first choice and make mistakes, it will it will be unforgivable. It's just the nature of, of how things are. I think that comes back to the project thing again as well. As you know, I I see there's a number of players in that team that are projects, but they're a different level project that we're talking about. He, he, you know, Mignolet was probably a project when we brought him in. He wasn't that top level goalkeeper, but we're, we're shopping in a different market now. And the, you know, Chamberlain came in. He was certainly. I would have said the project in some respects, but at a totally different level to some of the people we've talked about in the past. Okay, uh, I'm going to go and speak to Rory Smith about the World Cup and about the knock-on effect of the Premier League and planning. And we're going to come back then, and then we're going to talk about Liverpool's plan, and we're going to talk about Buvac. Yep, joined by Rory Smith. Yeah, let's going to have a chat about the World Cup and how much fun it was, first and foremost. He's been there, he's, he's lived through it all, on his way home now. The first thing, there's two things about the World Cup. One, it was great. And secondly, and I wonder if this is actually related to its, its greatness in a sense, it may well be the first World Cup that offers very, very little, to certainly to, to English domestic sides, but I think in general, and in terms of tactical inspiration, it's been more about, about an attitude inspiration maybe, which is only one side can win the World Cup, so we should all find some way to enjoy ourselves. Yeah, I, I always think that the World Cup was quite a good. So the day, yeah, the days when it was like the pinnacle of the game have gone. Uh, and the, to be honest, they'd probably gone before most of the people listening to this were kind of properly sentient. Uh, I think not since like 1990 was it really kind of the the absolute pinnacle of of world football. The Champions League yeah. has overtaken it completely. But I think that it, it's quite a good. Um, quite a good way of taking the temperature to sound like someone giving a, a management seminar. It's quite a way of taking the temperature of where the game is. And what this tournament was really about was 
Whereas 2010 was about Spain's technical excellence and the fact that they had this system that set them apart from everybody. This one was about the, it's very, it was very much a World Cup of, its, of the age of pressing, of counter-pressing, of, of small teams being really well organised, of little, little teams being able to compete with, with the superpowers. Maybe not always win, but certainly give them a game. If you, you know, there were, apart from England, Panama, there were no real thrashings. And I think that gave it a real sense of kind of chaos and the order being inverted and unpredictability. And I think everybody kind of across the world, not just in England, kind of bought into that and, and felt that this was something that, for the, for the first time really, it was a World Cup where there wasn't an outstanding thing. The France have won it in third gear kind of because they could be an outstanding team, not because they are, and that, that's been enough. There wasn't, apart from them, there wasn't anybody who looked flawless or anyone who looked clearly superior to the rest. There was this big welter of teams that could have won it. And it, it did, it gave it this sense of fun and um, inspiration, and I think it, it was, that partly kind of captured the world's imagination because, A, it's the World Cup and the World Cup special, but B, we're not used to that anymore. That, that, that's not how football works. We're used to the big teams stretching away and you know, Real Madrid and Barcelona being untouchable and Juventus winning the Serie A 15 years in a row and then signing Cristiano Ronaldo and Bayern doing the same in Germany and you know, the, big, the big six smashing everyone in the Premier League every week. And to, to have a tournament that, that felt like all of that had gone out the window and like there were no rules was kind of... Oh, maybe I'm, maybe I'm sleep-deprived and emotional... But um, it kind of felt like it was maybe what football needed a little bit. And for all that we complain about international football, you do wonder whether it might kind of be a welcome respite from the sort of money-driven, crazed world of football, of club football, where the same things happen all the time. One of the things that strikes me on the same things that happen all the time was was the number of sides who decided that actually no, we're not standing for the same things happening all the time here, and at least having a proper attempt at stopping it, and not stopping it by virtue of of freezing people out, but instead finding ways to play in a manner which is a little bit unorthodox, maybe, or play, or just simply to approach this idea that you know you look at the way in which practically every well they only played three but I think all three of Germany's opponents whilst they had to have long periods of the game defending they also all decided that they had a very specific way they were going to hurt Germany and that strikes me as you know having gone through a season of Premier League football where watching Manchester City primarily but also at times watching Liverpool lots of sides have got an idea as to how they're going to try and stop you but very very few sides have got an idea as to a real idea as to how they're going to try and hurt you in ways you haven't thought you can be hurt and that to me is something which which was refreshing not the it wasn't as the way anyone was reinventing any wheels as I say it was more the idea of let's go and let, let, let's actually do something here because you know what at some point we've got to make these feel as though we can score not just one goal but possibly two or even three yeah no I, I agree totally and I was at the Germany-Mexico game which feels like it was a, a lifetime ago and it <laughs> Again, it's one of those things, it's quite hard to explain, but what Mexico did didn't make any sense to the Germans, and that's why they beat them. So I think the Germans were, were assuming that this would be a Champions League game where you have a plucky kind of underdog, like a PSV Eindhoven or a Porto or whatever, and their job is to sit back and try and break and be respectful, and Germany's job is to have the ball, and, and eventually Germany win 2-0, and that's, that's how that works. And everyone thinks, didn't, you know, didn't PSV do well, didn't they resist, but Bayern Munich get the points. Um, and the Mexicans didn't see it like that. The Mexicans had, had a very specific plan to, to take the Germans on. I think it's funny enough, if the Mexicans hadn't blown it against Sweden in that last group game, if they'd only lost 1-0, they'd have won that group, 
they would have eventually run into England in the quarterfinals. And I think the, the plan that Mexicans used against the Germans would have worked against England as well. But they had this sort of, these lightning task breaks. But within those breaks, the players made choices that players in club football don't make. And whether that was to carry the ball for longer, whether it was to, to sort of overload certain wins at certain weird times, they did all these things and you could tell the Germans were sort of thinking, no, 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 no. That's not what you're meant to do. If you're going to break, you have to do it like this. Because if you watch European football, whether it's domestic or continental, it all follows the same pattern. And all players make the same choices because that's how they're coached. And I think because certain countries in Mexico and South Korea, probably two of them, have kind of their own indigenous football cultures, the decisions they make are, are different within certain contexts. And it's something we've lost from international football and it's disappeared completely from club football. But it is a way that, that teams that aren't fancy can compete with the superpowers. And I, th- I think too often, you're right, the managers think, right, we can stop them scoring if we do this, this and this. Very rarely do they think we can actually hurt them as well, other than from a set piece or, you know, you know a lucky goal this way, that, this way or the other. And I guess with the World Cup, it's easier because, you know, Juan Carlos, Juan Carlos Osorio had six months to prepare to face Germany and Germany alone. And it was interesting that against Sweden, he didn't, you know, he clearly kind of invested a lot of time in Germany, but not really thought how to beat Sweden. And they don't lose 3-0, don't come top of the roof, get Brazil in the last 16, and they're out. And I guess you can't do that in club football, but I do think there is a shortage of ambition from, from the mid-ranking teams when they come up against the really big boys, because I can, you know, you can understand it when it's a, a newly promoted side wanting to, to limit the damage or a team in the cup or whatever. But if you're kind of West Ham or Leicester or you know, one of those teams that should be finishing 8th or 10th, you should be trying to have a go at Manchester City. You shouldn't just be sitting there and thinking, right, we could get away with a 2-0 defeat, we've done all right. And there's too much of that. And I, there's too much lack of enthusiasm or inspiration or spirit or, or invention from managers, I think. And it won't, it won't, that won't translate into club football because club football will, will return and it will be like it always has been. But I do think the World Cup just offered a little glimpse that you don't always have to succumb to reputation. And that, that again, is incredibly refreshing. You mentioned that the club football will return and it will be club football. It is, though, worth pointing out that we're now... We're in ever so slightly uncharted waters. I keep keep talking about this. Firstly, we've had this reality that we in, in a Premier League sense, we've had two seasons going on. I think simultaneously, I'd say for possibly two weeks now, certainly for a week and a half for most clubs, and. There's the, there is the, the a very real possibility, and it may be no bad thing for them, but that there might be a number of Premier League clubs who, certainly in terms of recruitment and and also sales, are nowhere near maybe as prepared for eighteen nineteen, and and with the transfer window closing early as as is normally the case, it may well be that there's a fair few sides who are about to be caught on the hop, and there might actually be a virtue to to to, to accepting that and not doing a great deal this summer. Well, I, I always think that, you know me, Neil, I, I always think that um, the World Cup should be like the ancient Olympics and you should have to uh, declare a truce from all wars. And I think it's the same with the transfer market in the World <laughs> Cup. I think you should not be allowed to sign deals during the World Cup. But I have been surprised, and I also hate transfers, but I have been surprised that there's been so little activity from most teams. I know that obviously there's, there's a couple of really big deals have gone through in the last couple of weeks, and Liverpool got a couple done. Sorry, got Fabinho done obviously already had Cater in the bag before the tournament. But I've been really surprised that given, given that we have now what, a month before the transfer window shuts for English teams, 20 days. that they haven't, all been, haven't been more 
actors because they are they are going to run out of time and they are already at disadvantage because the European teams will be thinking right well yeah you shut your window on August fourteenth that's great we'll have another two and a half weeks thank you very much and their se- their seasons start later so they they get to kind of have that time to build towards the season so I do think I think you're right I think Chelsea is the one that you look at in particular the, the fact that their new manager arrived after pre season had started is ridiculous and to be honest scarcely believable. Um, and they, you know, they could get now. Hazard said that he, he wants to go. I think Cosmas raised doubts over his future. So you've kind of got you've got a new manager in who's got who's got a really specific way of working and a really specific style that he wants to teach his players to play. Um, he's got four weeks before his first game, uh, and he might lose two of his key players in that time. And I, I, I don't think that's the only one. I know United have signed a couple. Um, I think Arsenal have done kind of seem to have done most of their business, although it's all been very very low key. Um, <laughs> I am surprised that there hasn't been, yeah, more of a welter of deals going through. Well, but more clubs didn't try and do what Liverpool did and at least get one of one or two of the big ones in early so that they can hit the ground running. Because the World Cup's always it's always a problem. You know, there'll be every team will have players coming back in dribs and drabs for the next probably three weeks, depending on on how how far they they got in the tournament. And that 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 is disruptive anyway. And it's I'm sure the managers have built it in. You don't then need the, the added disruption of throwing in new players. And to be honest, yeah, you, there is a case for, and I'd hope that more, more managers have looked at what Pochettino and Klopp have done over the last two years, and more managers might think, actually, do you know what, I will just wait. I'll just, I, I, if I can't get the, play, the exact player I want, and they will know who they'll, they'll all know who they want. But if it, you know, the deals drag on, or, or they don't become available, or the price goes too high, you'd like to think that maybe they'd think, right, well, I'm not spending that money. I'll, I'll stick with what I've got. They've all got good squads already. Um, but it does seem to... Yeah, I think that's right. I think that the World Cup has been... It's almost as though the World Cup has distracted everybody within the clubs from what they should be doing. And that's possibly natural, but it's also slightly odd given how much money rests on all this stuff. So it may well be that we do have a bit of a sort of weird and chaotic start to the season. But that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. That's, if te- the big teams are losing... That, that would be in the Premier League's interest and in the interest of most leads across Europe. Last little thing I want to grab you on before I let you go. I know you're about to get a flight, so if you haven't got time to answer it, say, Neil, let's do this on a separate a separate time because I think it's really interesting. I'd like to do 20 minutes. Is the the, the idea that from, from the England point of view through the tournament, it appears from the outside looking in that... England supporters, I would say, mostly enjoying their football full-throatedly, was misconstrued as arrogance on a world stage. Um, in a manner that sort of was reminiscent to me of the European Cup run for Liverpool. Um, although I would say that, if anything, on the whole, I'd like to think anyway, Liverpool are more prone to that sort of arrogance, uh, given the given the history of the club and all of that sort of thing. And the fact, the fact that I actually think it makes a difference and it's a positive in terms of achieving things. But it strikes me that there's... that. That that happened, and that then there's a lot of people sort of cocking a snook at the idea of people really loving football, if you know what I mean, and really loving a football team and really getting behind them, and that seems a bit sad. I think, yeah, I, mean, I, I agree with you. So I, I was really impressed. I think England fans in in recent years have been not especially good fans in terms of how much they expect of their team, how they react when those expectations are met and kind of how they regard their place within the world order. And I, I've always thought that part of the problem with England is overestimating where England should be, but also massively underestimating where everybody else is. And this, this view that kind of, you know, we should, 
oh, we should beat Colombia. Who watches Colombia? And you think, well, Colombia's a, a team with a better international record than you, to be honest. Um, and it's the same with, you know, Belgium or Croatia or whoever. You know, we, England has an ability to underestimate how good everybody else is that's not especially helpful. Partly because it makes, every time you lose to them, it makes it seem much worse. Um, I, I think yeah. this year it's been different. It has felt more playful. It's felt more, more, certainly initially it felt more ironic. It, it felt more kind of, it's not really a word, but meaning. It was all, if you, if you watch those memes, they are all, there is a joke. There's no question there is a joke. And I think as the tournament started to unfold and as the joke got less funny, it started to look like something else. And it's, it's within the kind of, the subtleties of it, it's difficult to translate humour. It's easy to claim irony when you're not being ironic in hindsight. Um, I think it seems that maybe the, the, the English fans, the English press didn't necessarily pick up on that were the sources of annoyance. The, 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 there was the easy side of the draw stuff. So after the Croatia game, the journalists and the fans who were saying, look, we haven't been arrogant. We didn't underestimate Croatia. They were right. Because they didn't. You know, the, the coverage was all, maybe they'll be tired because they've played extra games. And, you know, an extra hour, effectively, um, in the last 16 in the quarters. And I think that, that's a legitimate thing to say. That's not underestimating Croatia. I, I found it slightly weird the Croatians got offended by that. And if anything, I think that came out of a place of respect for how good Modric and Rakitic and Mandzukic are to say, look, we might have a chance that they'll be knackered. But at the same time, you know, everyone was saying, the, the impression the English were giving was, this is the easy side of the draw. That's quite offensive to the, to the other teams in it. No one else was saying that. The Swedes weren't saying this is the easy side of the draw. The Croatians weren't saying this was the easy side of the draw. That was, just, that was kind of an English thing. And it did look from the outside like an easier side of the draw. But then to the teams involved, it's, that's quite offensive. And the other thing I think is, the, is that refrain from Three Lions of it's coming home. It's not arrogant, but it is slightly... I can see... I think everyone can now see why maybe that seems a little bit conceited to foreigners. It's parochial a little bit, isn't it? Who's to, who's, to, who's to say where home is? And we, we know that that song is kind of ironic and it's, and it's meant more about hope than it is, than it is about arrogance. It's more, it's more a, crit- a critique or a, you know, a, a mockery of what it is to be an England fan than it is saying this is the, you know, we're the greatest country in the world. But it, that, they weren't singing all of the lyrics. They were singing It's Coming Home. That's all they were singing. And to, I think to foreigners that, or to other teams, that probably is quite annoying. Uh, and you maybe have to just, to an extent, you just have to accept that, I think, that sometimes if you sing stuff and you're a high-profile team, then people will accuse you of arrogance. And it felt with Croatia particularly, like they were, they were just doing it to get themselves through. That was just what they, what they used to kind of get themselves up that little extra bit for the, for the semi-final. And that's, that's fine, that happens. But overall, I think this, this has been a good summer for kind of the reputation of England and England fans. I think they've generally done well. They've rehabilitated themselves, both the team and the fans, in kind of the international football community a little bit because they've added something to the tournament for the first time in ages. They've genuinely added, they were part of the party. And that doesn't normally happen. Normally there is a World Cup and then England sort of near it. Whereas this time it's not like that England were part of what was happening. And that's, that, that's really encouraging. And it's a kind of a shame, I guess, that there's this code to it where, where there's this sort of slight bitterness about kind of, well, we weren't being arrogant. Yes, you were being arrogant. No, we weren't. But that's just, I mean, it's just because part, it's partly just like English is the lingua franca. Everyone understands the chants. Like if you listen to what the Argentinians and the Brazilians are saying, they're really arrogant. But the chance are, and that's fine, that's what football's about. But because they're in Spanish and Portuguese, they're not quite as easy to translate. 
So I guess it, it partly comes from from kind of England's position of primacy and the interest in England through the world. But to be honest, I mean, if you said to fans, don't say anything arrogant, what on earth would anybody say? You, when but, I've been to like... But by far the greatest team the world has ever seen. Yeah. You're in some by far. No, you're not. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Like, the, 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 you know, the greatest team the world's ever seen was like Brazil 1970. Not some, some team that's ninth in the Premier League in November. But they all sing it. I mean, everything, you know, the fans at champs are arrogant, essentially, if you, if you boil them down. But they're also kind of meaningless. They're, they're not to be taken 100% seriously. So I think it's a shame that that's been the way that it's ended, given that England... Well, put it this way, for the first time, I wasn't absolutely absolutely delighted that England were out and I didn't feel that the tournament was better for their absence and their presence when they went, when they went out. I thought they genuinely contributed something and that's, that should be what kind of England takes in this tournament, not this weird debate about, oh, well, foreigners are really touchy, we can't see what we want. That's, <laughs> that's kind of missing the point, I think. Excellent. I will leave you to, to make the rest of the way home, take some time off, relax, put your feet up, and then I then plan for a transfer window. Uh, I don't know if you have to do anything, but anything to do with that now, do you? Do you have to do anything to do with that? Sorry, mate, I didn't hear that. Yeah, do you have to have anything to do with the transfer window now, or the, with, with the New York Times stuff, or what, what's the? What, 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 do you just get to take it easy and laugh? Uh, my my plan is to disappear for about three weeks and then slowly emerge from the cocoon. Excellent stuff. We'll let Rory uh, go and, and get hopefully, into... Hopefully by that stage, all the transfers will have been done. Uh, OK, we'll let Rory go and get into his cocoon. Let's get back to, uh, to Mel and Paul. Great to speak to Rory as ever. I'm planning for me for Premier League clubs. It's always one of the most interesting things. And Paul, for the first time, this is a situation where Jürgen Klopp's having to do having to effectively imagine what a, f- a football season looks like for a football club he's coaching for the first time in his entire career without Buvac, without the man who's been who's been there with him being present consistently and I mean if nothing else it must be different for him Yeah it's interesting it's interesting what that, that backroom team looks like now isn't it and, and who's going to take what roles because I, I make the assumption that there's people in there who are going to take up some of the, the roles that um, Buvac was taken so it'd be interesting it'd be interesting to understand what the makeup of that is they've got Pep Linders back what's his role now has he come back doing the same thing is he doing something slightly different um, just been doing a session on leadership with young people in a, in a school actually before we came here it's interesting how how many of these great leaders that we talked about they always talk about Gerrards and, and then there was leaders sort of political leaders but how many of them had really interesting seconds in commands who were really interesting characters so you know It'd be interesting how that works for Klopp and how how much of how much of an impact he he had really. Voices matter to managers, I think. Mel, uh, I think voice is an important thing. What you can do with that is you can extrapolate and say, well, it must all the, the voices that have always been there must always be there, and that isn't necessarily the case. No, yeah. I'm, I'm, I mean, you know, for instance, a lot of people say that losing Iestran had a negative impact on on Benitez as an example, but then oh eight oh nine when Benitez gets eighty six points, he's got no Paco Iestran, and that's arguably his best league season. So you can you can think that that's you know uh, you, you can you can make arguments, but there'll always be some sort of facts knocking round. But it does strike me that you know if you are Klopp someone who does for all the all the hugs and all the smiles, someone who does prepare fastidiously and down to as many details as he can, he does lack someone now to help with that who has been there in the past. Yeah. I think we, because of the char- character of Klopp, he's quite underestimated in how steely he is and how organised he is and, and well-prepared he is and stuff. And he is... 
a man that gives responsibility to his staff and wants, if you're head of a department or if you're in charge of something, he doesn't want you to ask him, you know, is this okay? He wants you to tell him, You he's put you there to let him know things. So he's got a lot of people around the club, a lot of strong voices who will challenge and, um, and push him. With Pep coming back, I assume Pep and Krauts would both be assistant managers. I don't think they'll be a tier because both their responsibilities would be quite different. Um, Krauts more with the video analysis and uh, and taking care of the opposition analysis with, with the research group and, and those kind of things. Pep more the tactical aspects, yeah. the training aspects where Buvac would have uh, helped with as well. I don't think in terms of um, professionally, it will make much of a difference because even though Klopp is so trusting of everyone and, like I said, likes to give responsibility out, he is the undoubted leader. It is his say, it is his ideology, it, it all comes down to him. Um, I think... Personally, you know, this was his friend for like yeah. nearly 27 years or something. But then again, I think because of his nature and the fact that he's got so many people around him again that he can lean on, you know, from former clubs and all that if he wants to bounce ideas off people, David Wagner, for example. So I, I don't think... Are you surprised that there hasn't been a named replacement? Or are you not surprised by that? Knowing what no, you know about I'm the not surprised by that because he is he likes to work in a... Everything is close-knit. Everything is family. Everything is the sense of we're all pulling together in the Can same Can I ask you direction. another question on that? You mentioned David Wagner. Do you think there's a possibility he will have approached Wagner to see if he wanted the job? No. No? No. Wants him Dave- to cut loose and be Huddersfield manager and have his own career? Yeah, David Wagner's going to be, you know, he'll okay. he'll do good things at Huddersfield as he already has done and he'll go on to be a top manager for, for you know, another good club. I can only see his career progressing that way. I don't think that I don't think Klopp would have even thought that. You know, that's uh, a slight on on David Wagner. I think um, with with Buvac, I think a part of it is not wanting to be second fiddle all the time. You know, maybe he thought he could go and be a first team coach somewhere else. Maybe the the annoyance of, of always having to be a part of instead of the mm-hmm. vital part. Um, but yeah, I, I can't see it being too much of an issue, especially since the law is laid down at Liverpool in terms of the requirements in a tactical perspective, the, what the philosophy is, the playing style is. Obviously, with variations depending on the position and stuff but you know what Liverpool are about the dressing room culture is very strong very carved out so you know you don't need help the, the dressing room self-polices uh, with the senior players committee so you don't need a voice in there mm-hmm. from the coaching staff if you, if you understand what I mean because it's that self-sufficient so I don't think it will be an issue 
Okay, uh, going to chat now to John about the US tour, which has been long on the cards, and then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll come back and we'll work through that too. And on this broken up Anfield rap, I've got John Gibbons with me now to chat. Broken up in a good way, John. We're getting lots of different varieties and viewpoints and voices. That's no bad thing, is it? That's a bit of variety to spice of life, as they say. I'd like to think so. <laughs> um, and speaking of the spice of life, the Anfield rap is going on tour. We're really excited about America for a variety of different reasons. Uh, but one of them is that we, we get to do three live shows. Yeah, the live shows are one of the most fun parts of of the job really um it's busted that we go get to go on the tours but you know the reason why we can is because obviously we, we put these live shows on and, and lots of people come and, and experience it really and yeah the huge amounts of fun if you speak to anyone who's, who's who's been to one or or, or is you know is, is, is seen the kind of the Anfield rap live in action we'll, we'll tell you it's it's just a party it's a celebration it's celebrating the fact that Liverpool are, are in these towns and in these cities and, and determined to kind of drag it out for as long as possible because that's what football's all about it is indeed I, mean, I think it's it's important that it's not I mean it's dead interesting because sometimes we're here and I'm not going to I'm not going to name names um, and it's not by the way I don't even think for a second we're talking about anything else to do with Liverpool but when you sometimes hear about what other live sort of podcasts do it all sounds really sedate so sometimes yeah. people turn up on a place and they'll say yeah yeah, yeah. they turned up they, sat, they had a few drinks they sat on the stage and they went from there uh, and their armchairs are involved or something like that it's I mean firstly I don't sit down um, <laughs> and often climb things but it's fair to say it's a it's it's, it's a expressive uh, experience yeah there's no armchairs certainly there will be chairs about but look you're as likely to get Nicki Minaj as you are Daniel Sturridge and I think that's like uh, that's 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 kind of the, how how it's best. Some look, it's it's great that Liverpool go over. It's great that Liverpool do these things, and I know the people who are in the supporters clubs because we've been speaking to them. You know, locally, can't wait to have Liverpool there, and so it's just it's just as I say, part of the celebrations. You know, for for a week and a bit, that the central you know the, the central point of, of the LFC universe is, is American and it's these cities and, and we, we just really like being part of that and part of the, the, the celebration of, of of each other's cultures really obviously there's the culture sport in Liverpool which a lot of people buy into which is brilliant but obviously you know we're out there in America we're interested to see how they support and how they do it and how they get behind the team and so you talk about tailgating here? a little bit yeah yeah we'll be getting into, into the, into the t- a little bit of tailgating action but also you know it's just it's just you know it's it, it'll, be, it'll be fun to to see and I realise that it's a big deal for you know a lot of people who, who live either in these towns or close to them for, for Liverpool to be coming and they want to make the most of it they want to celebrate it and yeah we'll, we'll give as much of that as you've got uh, So we're in Charlotte before Borussia Dortmund we are in, it's the night before on all of these so there's the day of the game and the night before we're in Charlotte on the night before Borussia Dortmund we're in New York City on the night before Manchester City, we are in um, it's Ann Arbor, we are in Detroit uh, yeah. before the uh, the Manchester United game, I'm so excited by that one and also we're in Dublin we're doing Belfast and Dublin again uh, we'll do talk about Dublin first Dublin we're, uh, we're, we're looking forward to that's the night before the Napoli game John yeah Dublin we've 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 done a few times now but it's never disappointed the first ever Anfield Rap Live show was in Bray which is just kind of it's a long road. way away from Dublin <laughs> well, as everyone just, wanted to tell it's us it's just up the road it's their Southport I think um, so it's <laughs> it's it, that, that was really good for us miles <laughs> <laughs> that was that was really it's on the dart um, <laughs> local knowledge um, it was it, that was really good fun, and that was like what like the ter- one of the, like a big turning point of the company really in terms of how we viewed it and and what we realised that, that it was capable of doing. And so that that brain night will always be kind of very dear to a lot of us who, who were there to experience it. But since then, we've been to Dublin quite a few times, and we've done shows generally around around the games. And look, a Dublin crowd never disappoints. You know, you don't have to invite people from Dublin to to join in. They're, they're there before you. 
uh, ready to do so. Uh, if they don't like something, they'll scream out and tell you. If they want to get involved, they'll they'll scream out and tell you. <laughs> and um, you know, if they need to go to the toilet, they'll scream out and tell you. <laughs> yep, yeah, can't wait to get to Dublin. That's in the Bolton factory, and that is on the third. And then there's this this opportunity that that that's arose in Belfast, John, which you, we've. We're doing, which is the last ever show at Mandela Hall. Yeah, it's, which is mad that it's us, but know, it is us, and but we it's will. Funny because they're doing like a, a last night at Mandela Hall thing, which is four days before us. Uh, <laughs> which is like the, the, the closing gig is kind of like four days before our, our one, um, and then there's something mad on like a couple of days later, which I think is even madder than us. Uh, I was about to say, I bet you the people who put that we put that one on are saying there's something madder than yeah, us on two days later. And it's us, uh, but it's it's my favourite venue I've ever done a live show uh, it's it's unreal and the history there is is, is, is fantastic a lot of the best bands not just in, in the UK but you know in, in the world have all kind of passed through there and it's it's an amazing place they've always looked after us really really well uh, I love Belfast and yeah it was we weren't, we weren't going to do it and we were going to go a bit later but the closing Mandela Hall and I don't know what they're replacing it with and <coughs> it, yeah as I say the opportunity came and they've, and they've, they've kind of been able to help us out and, and get us in there on the Thursday, so we're made up. So do come if you if you're listening. You're from Belfast. It's your last chance to get in Mandela Hall as it is now. Uh, you know, it's it's chance to see the Anfield Rap live. We're, we're putting on for the tenor. Uh, we've got Timo coming over and singing. So we're doing it. We're doing it cheap and, and we're doing it to get to, to, to get the room full and and just to kind of you know enjoy enjoy one last night in this in this absolutely brilliant place that the Clash played. <laughs> <laughs> All the tickets are available on C tickets. Listen, we're going to have an absolute ball and show. We're going to explode in New York City. We're going to have a fantastic time when we get to Ann Arbor, when we get to Detroit. I cannot wait for 110,000 people watching Liverpool. I so much hope that happens. We're going to have a celebration in Dublin the night before, and we hope to grace Bandela Hall. That's what we're doing across that. We mentioned on City Talk, we are also on the 9th going to be doing an all-day transfer deadline day live stream show for you. Tell your mates, whoever they support. We're really, really looking forward to that one. It's a, we've got an unbelievable, an unbelievable, so excited, an Unbelievable run from now until the start of the season ahead of us. So if you're in any of those places, come and see us. If you are uh, looking forward to transfer deadline day, come and share it with us. This is the Anfield Wrap, and we love, love, love the tours. This pre-season tour, then, Paul. I think when they first started, and it'd be interesting to get your view on it. You know, Liverpool supporters in Liverpool were a little bit sceptical, and I think one of the things that we've got to see. From um, all this, all the footage that you get abroad, and you know, I've been lucky enough to see it because by virtue of being there, I think the first thing that you take from the tours is it's nice to see Liverpool supporters somewhere else in the world get to watch the football team. As basic as that is, as simple as a sentence that is, before you get onto the you know all the grown-up conversations about commercial realities and all of that sort of stuff, there is. I think I'd like to think now with in Liverpool there is now we've we've grown, we've developed. There's a simple pleasure in watching supporters elsewhere get to do what we we're lucky enough to get to do 19 times a season in the league. Definitely, yeah, and I think I mean even the structure of the, the tours now where, where they have games pre at home. I think they always sort of have, but it seems to be more visible. Now, well, in the um, northwest, I think that that has helped. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I've got family in North Carolina, so they were at the game a couple of years ago, wasn't yeah. it? Um, and and loved it out there. And you know, there's a real sort of looking forward to it again. And they're going again. Yeah, uh, I think they're going to see you guys as well. Actually, while oh, they're over God. there, well, um, fantastic news. Yeah, uh, but yeah, so. I mean the, the whole culture around it there for them, and and and, and the learning, the sort of language, and you know. The, the football language, if you like, is it, I think it's a real eye opener for them. They're British born, obviously, but you know they they've got a lot of friends now. We follow Liverpool because 
they do, but also because they've had a chance to see them. Um, so it's quite, I think it's really nice in that sense of, you know, just that feeling part of it, but also understanding the sort of idiosyncrasies of it all, if you like. One of the things that strikes me, Mel, is Fabinho's come from Monaco. He's reached the Champions League semi-final. Naby Keita's come from Leipzig. They've had a hell of a two years. Uh, Shaqiri's come from Stoke. Before then, he's played for Inter Milan. And even Bayern Munich, there is... I think there is something, and I think it happened in 2013 when, when Liverpool went to Australia. I think there is something about these tours and the reaction they get from the overseas supporters at every step of the way that tells these players, this is the biggest club you've ever played football for. Yeah, it is massively eye-opening and, and all players reference it when they've been on a tour. And often, even if they've not, if you've not spoken to them and they've not said anything, you can see the reaction when they come out the bus and, and their face and, you know, when they're... Up, post a training session if it's an open training session they can't wait to get over to the fans because what's preceded that during this session the chanting and it's like being at a, an actual game with the amount of people that show up um and it does I, I think often because you're always you know as a footballer you've got to be in the zone and you block things out and you've got to focus and it's all about discipline and and your regime and all those things that you, you're doing. But when you go on tour, you it's that step back, like, oh my goodness, this is a massive club and I want to play a massive part in this massive club. Um, it is brilliant, you know, like you say, for fans to get an opportunity, the international fans, to get that taste of what we are very pr privileged to have every week. And when you think about for the Champions League final, I spoke to people like in Singapore, uh, in America, in New Zealand about what time they were having to get up for the match and, and how they were preparing for this. I mean, you know, 2 a.m. kickoff in, in some places, 4 a.m. elsewhere. You've got work, you've got your family, you've got life going on, but this is the biggest thing, you know, happening at the moment. And how people have to rejig their entire schedules and you know go and make sure force pubs to be open at that time so you can go there with a group of mates and watch it it's i think it's just reward for them and you know ultimately i hate the whole when people say well your opinion doesn't matter because you're not from liverpool or you're mm -hmm. you're not scouse or it doesn't matter. Everyone, Liverpool is so successful and is so huge and and can attract the best players because they're a global behemoth. Yeah, I, I, I'm like I'm desperate for the Ann Arbor game to sell out, Paul. On a personal sort of selfish level, because I'm gonna I know I'm gonna be lucky enough to be there, and the idea of being part of the scene, the biggest crowd for Liverpool ever to play in front of, certainly the biggest crowd where the number will be reported. Uh, it's fair to say, but also just that idea of yep, yeah, a hundred thousand people want to go and watch Liverpool play football. Admittedly, against Manchester United, and I'll allow that like three or four people who were there might want to see Man United. <laughs> but you know, it, it, it is the idea of you know I love being at the MCG, going right the way back in in in, in Australia, and just to see that sort of. Thing this mass exodus, this mass flow of people to see to see our football team, to see the football team that represents our city. Definitely. I mean, it's great finds. I, I say it's 
been over to North Carolina and met family and finding out how people have ended up supporting Liverpool and, and what the reasons are. And they're not always the reasons that you'd expect them to be. You know, it's not always about your Steven Gerrard, Gerrard or, or your Suarez in the past or whatever. It's about who they've met, the family they've met or places they've visited or, you know, um, people they've met on holiday who've talked about it. And it's just, it's just really nice them different things because we just assume everyone's got the same story we've got and you know we've had we have had that luxury of I live five minutes away from the ground and I have had that but that's not the only way that you've ended you know that you end up supporting your team and in a way in some ways it was easy for me to support my team it was <laughs> yeah, there I didn't that, have to that, go very that's fast that's the thing it. like people around the world have actually chosen yeah, to never, support Liverpool you could choose <laughs> exactly so, for most people you actually you don't you don't have the choice and I don't know why but often there are some who feel because there was a choice involved are you not well you don't choose this you you're born into it and actually in Liverpool you could very easily be born <laughs> into the other club so I think the fact that people have a choice and you know in an era of in the 90s when United were so massive and at the start of, of the 2000s when you had Arsenal's Invincibles, when you have City now and, and you know, Chelsea post-Abramovich, that people are still choosing Liverpool is, is a big deal. I spoke uh, earlier to one of the unlucky souls who sadly uh, ended up supporting Evan in this first city of ours. <laughs> um, spoke to Matt Jones about firstly the 22 nil, but also the, uh, the strangeness uh, of Everton's pre-season with Marco Silva. And this is what he had to say for himself. Yep, as part of trying to get people the flavour of everything we do on the Anfield Wrap, I've uh, had to go out the studio to go and speak to Matt Jones of the Blue Room about Everton, Everton's preparations for the season. The fact that they are a little bit scattergun this, this summer, we'll come on to that, but we've got to start with the 22-0. 22-0 against a side no one's ever heard of. Uh, the goalkeeper turning his back was the one that made me laugh the most, but there were others. Yeah, there were plenty. I mean, it's, it's, it's when you see the lads actually trying to defend properly. I'm not going to be able to do that right. I mean, not that's even worse, but yeah. Giving up like that was uh, was quite hilarious, and, and I was away this weekend, and wasn't really following it that much because didn't think it'd be much of an, an event of a game really. But just checking my phone, it was half time. I saw it was I think it was fourteen nil at that point or thirteen nil. It, it's absolutely crazy, and you know you, you've got to question the the benefits of anything like this. Um, I think the club's official Twitter accounts are following it like it's an actual real preseason game <laughs> as well. Um, putting out all the scores and everything. I think the, the poor lad who did that must have been quite sorry, bit uh, gutted, wasn't he? But. No, it's, I think you know, we were just talking then before we hit record, and I think it was just a case of Silver's over there on the training camp of Austria. They're having a bit of a session. You think, right? Can we get can we get some lads down here to, to play a game against? And you know, the fact that they haven't got a Wikipedia page. I think they're in the seventh tier of Austrian football. Um, wow, very, very very strange one, yeah. But uh, you know, on the other side, you could just say, why bother with the Premier League? Just give us the title now. But we just get everyone twenty two goals in it. Uh, it was remarkable, yeah, absolutely weird. I just want to st- you mentioned there the training camp because what a lot we're talking about on this show is the idea of preparation, and I think it's important to talk about what other sides are able to do. So Everton, there's a double edged sword, I think, with Everton, which is that this summer which is that Silver and Brands haven't been present and able to make decisions for a while, for the, the, the part where you plan the pre-season. They've, they've come in quite late for that. And also there's another conversation which we'll come on to have about how much they've actually seen of the players they've got to make decisions on. But then there's a flip side of that, which is that, for better or worse, Everton tend to have fewer commercial obligations. There's mm. still, you know, they're in almost the second tier of that. There's sides like Huddersfield that have none. Mm. Everton have got some commercial obligations. There'll be stuff that they want to do. But he is able to take them to Austria to do a training camp for 14 days or something yeah. like that. Yeah, well, I think that's, you know, that, I think what, what we've seen with this, this pre-season, how scattered it is, it's sort of the, 
when we were talking about it in, in February, March, about what Everton do, and it kind of felt the club had it pause. If you'd got rid of Sam Allardyce then, or you know, and got Marco Silva for those last few months, or or where towards the idea that he was going to come in in the summer, and you were kind of speaking to him, getting him to set things up and stuff like that, then you probably would have had a, a bit more of a, a pre-season with, with some more structure in there. But because, like you said, it, it's all been so up in the air, they've kind of had to play seven, 17 Austrian sides. They've had to go to the, this Algarve Cup, which seemed like a very late decision as well. They're playing a, a Kenyan team who's come to Goodison Park um, at some point as well. Uh, I think they played them last summer, Go Maya, something like that. I think they, they won the, um, the Everton sponsors, obviously, a sport pacer, and they won a sport pacer trophy to, for, to have the right to play Everton in a pre season game. So that one could be interesting as well. And they've got Valencia on, on you know, the, the last one. So, yeah, it's, it's a weird one. I think it's, it's good that he's going to get to have a, a good look at all the players, like you said there. And while there are a lot of people who are, who are panicking now about the fact that lads haven't gone out the door and lads haven't really come in the door yet. I'm quite happy with it all for the time being. I'm, I'm glad that he's, he's taking stock of it. I'm glad he's sort of given everybody an, an opportunity. And I think, I think if, if you're a player with the right attitude as well, I think he's, he'll be the good, a good coach for you. I think all the all the um, all the clips that's coming out from the club so far have been him being very meticulous on the training pitch, um, you know, literally telling lads where to you know, stand and all that sort of thing. He seems like he's very invested, and I think with that type of coaching style and the players who kind of buy into that, I think he'll learn a lot about the squad, and you'll start to realise. You know, yeah, he, he, he's in for this. He, he wants this level of detail. He's quite happy to be on board with all this. Whereas someone, some of the, some of the others might not. And I think that's when you start to make some more parent decisions and the lads he's got at his disposal. You, you mentioned that you know there's been no one in so far, <clears throat> and there's only really been Funes Mori out. Mm. It strikes me that there's he hasn't got to work with them. He hasn't seen them. Mm. But this is now for them as and him. This is almost like an audition period. But also that you know, talking to Rory before, one of the things that that, that was coming out was this. This thing where we, as football supporters, we like to see our clubs really, really busy. Mm. But that if there's ever maybe a window where, for a lot of clubs, busy might not be actually that useful and ever even more intensified mm. because of this. It could be this one. That, that could be quite counterintuitive. It was a frustrating season for you last season for a variety of reasons. But there is still this sort of... To, to rush in and do absolutely loads mm. may, just be, may just be something that ends up again sort of hanging a few things around the necks of Branson Silver and the impression I get so far as an outsider is that's the thing they don't want they don't yeah. want things hanging around the necks they don't want any weight that they, don't, that they can't be bothered with well I think that the thing that shows that off straight away is the fact that Wayne Rooney was pretty much out the door pretty much before they'd even arrived and you wondered if those conversations had sort of taken place before they'd got to the football club and the wheels were put in motion with, with that already but yeah you're right and I think that the appointment to Silver itself I think says a lot because he's very much he's, he's more of a coach than a manager isn't he somebody who's going to be working on the training pitch and he'll be happy to, to work with the players he's got given and you look at players from last season and think maybe somebody like Sandro, who seems to have been quite heavily involved in, in all the, you know, the stuff the club's putting out, he played at the weekend. You look at someone like Emma Fink, right? He got less than three Premier League games last season in total, the minutes wise. And, and people are making a decision on, on this lad. You think, well, he's a Barcelona Youth Academy graduate. He's got 16 goals as a 21 year old in La Liga. Maybe let's have another look at him, see what he's all about. Maybe somebody like Silver, his style of football, might suit him a lot more. So perhaps that's that, that's a, a bit of a better way to do it. And, and they're thinking, right, maybe before we completely discard all these players who spent massive money on last summer, let's get a proper coach in through the door and see and see if he can see if he can do things with these lads. Well, there's a few of them, isn't there? There's Classen yeah. as well. Um, there's there's also the lads who became unpopular or become unpopular, lads like Schneiderlin who's mm-hmm. making noises like he wants to move on, but who really, you know, again was more than good enough at Southampton to get a move yeah. to Manchester United, yeah. uh, and that wasn't like that wasn't a, a good three months. That was two years of, of graft. Yeah. There's 
it is you know there's there's players there I think at Everton and I think that's why it's, it is an intri- it's an intriguing little case study I think this this summer and in terms of doing the opposite of what happened last summer mm. and in terms of maybe a few of those lads who came in last summer letting them letting them be the footballers they could be yeah it's probably too risky to be like, like they were last summer as well I mean we're looking at a club here who spent from Ronald Koeman coming into Alavis Gomes he spent more than £200 million pounds on players he sacked Ronald Koeman he, he was on a £6 million pound a year contract you know Halfway into it, they had to pay him off what nine million. He got to pay Allardyce off nine million as well. Steve Walsh was you know two and a half million. So I think people have to you know Farah Mashiri's obviously got a, a bit of backing and, and a bit of wealth, but he's probably stood back and thinks I'm spending a bit too much here. I can't go out and and throw money at players again this summer. It, it's it's not the best way to run a business in that sense, and that's why in another respect as well. I mean, a lot of people are getting a bit antsy about this this Kieran Tierney um, linking the deal and how. Some are, some people are a bit disappointed. Everton have just gone there. You go, it's twenty five million. We'll, we'll have the lad in now. But I think it shows that in someone like Brands, they've got somebody who's probably a bit more savvy operator, a bit more cautious. And I think he'll want to set a, a, the right precedent in that sense in terms of getting players in. He, he, he just won't want to bend over and, and say Celtic, yeah, we'll, we'll give you the money we want because that's what we did last summer and it didn't really work. So I think it's definitely been a tight of the belt in all aspects of the club. And I'm fine with that. Um, it might mean we have to be a bit more patient. It might mean there might be too many new faces to get excited about. But it might mean one. that more young players get a chance yeah. because there's a, there is an exciting crop of, of young players coming through. There's Dow, for instance, who, who impressed in the first half of the season mm. at Forest. I think he, he maybe went off the boil a little bit second half, but first half of the season, from everything I saw, he was impressing week in, yeah. week out. Davis, Holgate, these are footballers. I, for instance, I, I think that the treatment of Mason Holgate last season by Everton is really strange. Mm. You know, he, for me, looked Everton's best central defender, yeah. with the possible exception of Jack Yelker, and you can't keep going there. Mm. So, you know, I think it is there are young lads, aren't there, who, who, who Everton, who Silver may well look at and think, well, I'll have a couple of years more than you. Yeah, yeah I think, I think the, the name you mentioned there, I think, is going to be the most interesting of me is Davis. See what he can do with him because you're looking at a player there who, who burst onto the scenes so spectacularly in that 2016-17 season, and last year he just looked like he'd forgotten how to play football at times. But it's, 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 I think it's difficult to judge anybody based on what happened last season because you look at someone like Davis in particular, and he probably suffered from it more than most. He plays right wing back in a Europa League game to, to start the, the campaign. He's brought on a right side of midfield at times and early on the Ronald Koeman, and, and then he's in and out to the side every now and then. And, and while he didn't play particularly well. There's no one who was at the club last season who looked at him and went, right, I, I believe in you. I'm going to give you five, ten games in the side, in your, in your best position, to stamp your authority on, on, on the team. He didn't do that. I think you mentioned Holgate as well there. He, he was enough one where there's a spell when Alvis came in when he played next to Williams. And um, when Everton went to Anfield, actually played them too as a centre-back in that, um, in that 1-1 game. And they, put, they built up a good little partnership and they had one bad game against West Brom. And he's hooked from the side then, and then he has surgery late in the, late in the campaign, and, and he's not, not really seen again. So it's a difficult one. But I think, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier, I think if you're a young player and a manager comes in like Silver, who will be so invested and say, right, I'm going to spend all my time on the training pitch working with you and making you a better footballer. If you don't have the right attitude. You should feel you should feel ten foot tall about that. You should be made up that someone's coming in and showing that level of interest in you. Whereas someone last season like Allardyce who preached about sticking together and then went off to Big Sam's Villa. I think on the, on the Monday, the, all, all the players came in and went, where is he then? He gave this big rouser speech on, on the Saturday after he got beat, came in on Monday, he, he's still in his villa in Spain, Sammy Lee taking training. And you're thinking, that, that's so standoffish and going to be so different to what they've got now. And I think someone like Silva, who is very much a, a pure coach, 
is going to be investing in these players, is going to be taking so much focus on where they're standing to the inch on the pitch. That, that should make them feel great going into games. So if unless there's an unlikely departure, would you almost be happy with the idea that, that, that they do a centre-half, a left-back and one forward? That that would almost, you just go, you know what, and then let's just get rid of a few and then let's just go with that at least for the first half of the season. Is that sort of where you're looking at it now? Yeah, I think I think three or four, yeah. Um, but it's important that... The, the right three or yeah, four? Yeah, it's important they come in and you know, improve the team immediately. I mean, there's been links with someone like that, Yerry Mina from Barcelona, who I think looked quite good in the World Cup. He was a bit ropey at Barcelona last season, but very difficult circumstances for him. He's someone you look at and think, right, yeah, he could probably come in and, and do something straight away. Someone like Thierry or Dinia, and then, as you mentioned there, just at forward, you can get people excited, you know. I think Everton have been a little bit too cautious in, in the way they've gone after forwards in recent years, and it'd be good to see us go and get someone a bit extravagant. Maybe someone like a Herving Lozano, who'd been linked before the World Cup, who can kind of just ignite the crowd a little bit and get people excited. But yeah, I think it's, it's a good time to have a, a look at, at the young players now. Um, Luckman's, Luckman's another interesting one, because I think the noises are that he'd be quite happy to go off to Leipzig and, and play there. They've obviously bid for him, but the club are putting a lot of stock in him. But, I suppose what that does then is it. I think a lot of those players that we talked about and we spoke about on the review show earlier in the week, when I, when I went away from that, I was thinking, you know, these lads aren't 16, 17, 18 anymore. I think you look at Davis is 20 now, Dow's 21, John Joe Kenny's 22. So they're, they're coming up to the point now where you say, right, this is a big season for a lot of these. You don't want to be in 12 month time saying these lads are still potentially might do it, do they need to go out on loan? And that, that window of opportunity is going to be small for them. So it'll be nice to see them given a good chance up until January, maybe bring it three, four, as you mentioned there, to improve the first team and just take it from there and see. Um, but I think seeing those players week in, week out, maybe learning on, on, at Goodison Park will be a lot more exciting than seeing you know same old, older faces that we had to the second half of last season. Is there... There's a hope and expectation sort of conversation, which is, is interesting. I think. What, what, firstly, what, what are you hoping for? But secondly, what you're expecting? And let's be, you know, let, let's 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 be get to be a football supporter when we talk about what you're yeah. hoping for, and then be, you know, maybe a bit more of an ardent realist in what you're expecting this season. But what 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 do you think is reasonable for either of them? I think taking ex- expectations. I think we could see the team start quite fast. I think they've got quite a favourable run. They've got Wolves away. 5.30 on the first day which is a bastard of a game to be honest <laughs> but, uh, I just feel like that's know, been set up that, completely that, that could be probably one of the most bevied stadiums I think we could see anywhere, anywhere in the country that weekend <laughs> at, at half five then back in the league so that, that's a hard one but I think they've got a, a very very favourable run after that I think they don't play any of the last season's top five until November All right. so it's um, it's quite good in that sense and that should give him a chance to kind of get his get his plans across because I think it, it will take a bit of time maybe struggle well, a bit started well last season as well yeah of, of course yeah um, but I think he's that type of fella anything he gives plays that lift and that, that should be helpful um, in terms of what I, what, I, what I want is just to kind of and I, I know it sounds quite sad but just to enjoy it again I mean now, I remember bumping into you outside Rigby's, going to Southampton on the last day of the season, you know, saying, you were saying, don't you, don't you kick off 15 minutes, and we weren't sure if we were going to go or not, and, and that's horrible, that's absolutely horrible, and, you know, again, I said it to you last season, you know, watching you last year, the amount of enjoyment you got from going to match and following your team around, you thought, oh, yeah, you know, I'd love a bit of that, it's, it's been far too long, and there is potential, I think there is potential to, to ignite Goodison and you know, we were speaking on one of our shows the other day about the stadium moving out. If, if, if it happens in, in three or four years or whatever, you're looking at less than 80 games at Goodison Park in the Premier League still to go. And, yeah. and, and that clock's ticking, and I think people are starting to realise that now. And even though last season was so bad and you know the football was terrible, you sold out on season tickets again. You sold out every single home game last season for the second year in a row. So people are still going, people are still wanting to see something. And, 
there is there is potential to be nice for here, I think, and it's, it's just whether he's the the right man and the, the style of football he plays and the young players he brings into the team can all amalgamate it to make that happen. Okay, thank you very much to Matt Jones. The Blue Room, very much worth checking out, keeping an eye on our friends there. Yeah, let's get back over. Our friend Jane Lawless has got an exhibition as part of a dead pigeon gallery strand that she's been working on. It's at the office of Dan Carden, MP66 Priory Road in Liverpool. Uh, that's L42RZ is the postcode. The opening night is Thursday the 19th of July between 6 and 8pm. Uh, Jane's been doing fabulous work for many a year. The exhibition's open then to the public 21st of July, uh, Saturday 12 till 5. All these are 12 till 5, Monday the 23rd, Tuesday the 24th, Wednesday the 25th and Thursday the 26th. So that office space is getting taken over. But it's for a three-month period. It's the second Dead Pigeon Gallery group show. And it continues the theme that they've been developing of exhibiting art in unexpected and unusual places. A unique collaboration that Jane's been working on there. And a great attitude from Dan as well to have that be present within his office. If you want to see it after Thursday, the 26th of July, it is present for three months. But then you've got to approach Jane herself uh, via Jane. It's in the independent biennial 2018 listings. That's janelawless7 at gmail.com for after. Thursday the 26th and a rundown of the artists who are involved it is Andrea Koo uh, Catherine Dalton Jay McNeil Jane Lawless herself Josie J- Jenkins Lewis Jack Prestige and Mark Luden are all people who are work exhibiting their work in Dan Carden's office I'll say it again the opening night is Thursday the 19th of July uh, and then you've got the 21st uh, the 23rd the 24th the 25th and the 26th Excellent to speak to Matt there. And that has been the Anfield Wrap this week. Listen, I hope you've really enjoyed it. A little bit different. Thought we'd shake it up, uh, especially given the uh, the very boring nil-nil draw against Berry on Saturday. We thought rather than dwell on that, what we'd do instead is look around wider, wider issues and, and give you a little flavour of what we try to do as well behind the paywall. Uh, the Anfield Wrap this season, we do hope to be the perfect companion for Liverpool supporters. We do about five shows around every single match, every single weekend uh, in terms of previewing those shows. And we'll be doing about five shows as well, looking back at the weekend's action, at the weekend's game where Liverpool are concerned and also taking the wider Premier League picture we've got our coach home show which speaks to supporters of other clubs, we've got our Friday show that previews not just Liverpool's match but the big 3-4 games that weekend that influence the club and hopefully give people a wider sense of what's going on right the way across sort of the spectrum of the 20 clubs within the Premier League but we do have our focused Liverpool orientated stuff as well uh, where we have our specific team talk show which previews the weekend's action, we're going to be adding a show called The Weekender which is going to be available which will do something very similar indeed uh, we have our show with a relationship with City Talk that we've got plus then we've got the Anfield Rap main show and the review all of that to come uh, across every single match right the way through the season uh, and between now and the 9th of August when we've got our transfer deadline day live stream special uh, we are looking and focusing in on Liverpool's transfers and Liverpool's recruitment for the season as a whole listen it's the Anfieldrap.com forward slash subscribe to get involved with the Anfield Rap's player £5 a month for that we really do believe it is very much worth that money very very much worth it indeed uh, we're very very proud of it so if you get the opportunity please do, please do take it seriously please do have a little look at it and please sign up and subscribe listen thank you very much to Melissa Reddy and to Paul Hogan to John Gibbons to Rory Smith and to Matt Jones that's been the Anfield Wrap this week in association with Reds Bet see you soon Sports Social Podcast Network